I will read Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Please follow along as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, when we began this series on Epiphany, uh, I told you that Christmas Day is followed by a traditional 12 days of Christmas, and my family grew up singing that 12 days of Christmas song every Christmas meal, and uh, I don't know if anybody else has that um, tradition, but I didn't know what that 12 days of Christmas meant. I knew what an Advent calendar was. We had one of those. I didn't know what 12 days of Christmas was. Well, it's the it's from tomorrow, essentially, to January 6th. This is the 12 days of Christmas. And this is traditionally called Epiphany. Actually, the very second century, I believe it was the second century, they started celebrating Epiphany, or the appearing, the manifestation of Christ in the world, with a festival, with a feast. And we'll celebrate Christmas today together by worshiping our Lord and communing in song and praise and worship towards Him and edifying the saints, and hearing the word of God, uh, being um, committed to the word of God, and the Lord being present with us in the Lord's table. And yet, we remember these things because Christ appeared. And so I hope you know by now, epiphany means to appear to manifest, then the traditional way which the church would recognize this holiday was by looking at this text before us today, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And the narrative is all too familiar, and yet very little gospel edification is often brought to us, our hearts, as we read it. Often it's a traditional narrative regarding Jesus' birth, and we often uh, don't pay much attention to the gospel which is infused in it. And today I want to look not in a detailed and in-depth way at the text. I don't think we'd have time to go through all verse 12. But I do want to key in, especially uh, an overview of the Magi and their purpose. 
The Magi are a very mysterious people. One of the words that is helpful to describe what goes on at Christmas is the term mystery. And the Magi fit into that term very well. We sung the song, We Three Kings, and that's usually how we think of these three men. And yet, in the text, there's not necessarily any word that there were three of them. They are just Magi. We designate that there were three of them in tradition because of the three gifts that were given. But we don't know exactly how many there were. That's one of the mysteries from the text. And there are many others. But we learn some things in history about these men that I think help to make sense of the text. Now, not everything we learn about them in history is necessarily true. There's a tradition that we know the men's names here. Casper or Gasper. One of them reminds me of Melkor, if you're a Lord of the Rings book fan like I am. He was the great evil person uh, in Tolkien's works. But Melchior is the, one of the names of the men. And one of them reminds me of Daniel. Belteshazzar was Daniel's Babylonian name. And the third is Balthazar, however you might pronounce that. But these are the three traditional names for these men. And we really don't know their names. Uh, I think those were given in the 13th century by a bishop. And the historical resources for that are very slim. And so there are traditions, there are mysteries that we don't know, but there also is a thread of history that helps us when we come to this text, I believe, uh, make sense of it. We were talking beforehand, and I grew up in the church, and I really have a lot of misunderstandings of this text based upon what I was taught as a young child in the church. And I hope that this would be edifying to us to have an overview of who these men were. Not much is known for sure about the Magi's, but one of the things that we do see very regularly in history and consistently in history about them is that this was an ancient priestly class of people. This is not necessarily that they were uh, Egyptian or they were... Persian, or they are of the Medes, or they are of Babylonian descent, but they were a class of people, a priestly class, and in fact, they are represented in all of the names, these peoples, these nations that I, that I mentioned. In history, there are a class of priests that do follow this designation of, as we will call them, magi, wise men, magoi, the Greek word, Magus, I believe, is the other one. We actually see that tradition continued in the New Testament. There are two magicians in Acts described for us, and they were part of the Magi class themselves. This is an ancient people. Uh, dating as early as the Chaldean Empire, where Abraham came out of, Ur of the Chaldees. And then we see that Joseph was surrounded by these magicians. The only time that same Hebrew word is used is used of in the Babylonian Empire when Daniel is taken captive. And there are magicians there. And these are very interesting threads that we see in Scripture. But history also bears witness that this was an ancient people. And part of the things that designated them magi was that they were charters of history. They took notes. They were scribes. They were historians. They charted the sky. They were astrologers. 
something that God told the people of Israel, I don't want you doing. It's very interesting. God would give his people revelation from himself through the prophets, through Moses, through his covenant that he made with Israel. And so he tells them, you're not to be astrologers. You're not to be soothsayers. And yet this people, going very far back, all have these character traits. It's believed that, believed that they were extremely powerful in their influence as well. That, in fact, if you're familiar with the stories of Esther, if you're familiar with Daniel, you'll have remembered the law of the Medes and the Persians, where once a law was decreed by the king, even the king couldn't change it, and that underneath, the reason why a king didn't have absolute tyrannical power was he was kept in check by the, what was called the laws of the Medes and the Persian. It's, and it's believed, as I read and as I listened to various scholars on this, that that law was instituted by the Magi, by this priestly class. And so they were a means of holding in check powerful kings and despots and rulers. They were described, and some historians describe them as kingmakers, whom they described, who they recognized as kings, those were the kings. The Magi were then taken by various different nations and leaders of nations so that they, the kings of those nations would be recognized by the people, not just in their kingdom, but other kingdoms, as true kings. If the Magi said they were kings, they were kings. And these are all traditions in history that we see. I'm not going to tell you that they are absolutely true, but I think there is a thread among them that if we see these things as they unfold in our text, the way that history does ascribe these men, the way that history describes them, it opens up the text that we have before us in ways that I think are very powerful. The greatness of these men were also demonstrated in what was very well known, in fact, very well detailed in history, that when they traveled, they traveled not on camels. Everybody's got the, the nativity sea with a bunch of camels and very humble entourage of three men. They, they traveled extravagantly. They dressed in a way that people knew who they were. They were magis. They evidently had pointed caps, and they were dressed in colors that would show that they are a powerful class of people and they were also accompanied with an entourage it wasn't three men by themselves they probably had mercenary soldiers with them they had a group of people perhaps even uh heralds crying out who they were before them they were a a powerful and recognizable class of people now, Rome is the great nation at the time of the Magi's appearing in Jerusalem. And Herod is a great ruler in this region. He is called Herod the Great. He did many things to uh, maintain his power and his influence. He murdered two of his sons. All of our sons in here, do not be afraid. <laughs> Uh, no one is that uh, hungry for power here among you, and we love you. And, uh, but Herod had a drive, a lust for power. He murdered his favorite wife because he felt threatened by her. 
He, we see in the text, murdered the children to and under because he felt threatened by this child who the Magi came to see. Verse 2 says, the Magi came to see because they saw his star. They came to see the, the one born king of the Jews. And the text says that Herod was troubled. And the idea there is like a storm that churns up water. The same idea that the, the, the disciples of Jesus, when they are in a storm, they themselves are in a storm inwardly. They are troubled. They fear. They tremble. And that is Herod's response to these magi who come to him, and if we can imagine, not these three solitary figures, but these great men coming to, to Herod and to his court to be received by Herod in his court, and he says, what are you doing here? It's very interesting. It's almost like we should just accept that Herod would bring them right into his court. This is the way that Matthew writes. It's almost like to his day and age, the people would understand these were great men. Herod received them into his court, and after hearing what they had to say, he was afraid. The Magi are here to recognize a king born, a king of the Jews. So there's two things going on here. Rome did not want to pick a fight with everybody. This is something we need to understand. When you're a powerful nation, it's not very helpful for you to start picking fights with everybody because even a powerful nation can be set into many different paths and spread very thinly if you start picking fights with all your outlying nations that are under your power and what's interesting about this is you have two issues coming together at one once you have the magi who represented the east the orient people babylonian persian medes uh even the Egyptians, you had a powerful influence in them coming. And then you have the Jews, and the Jews were just an unruly people. History tells us they were not an easy people to subjugate. They believed that they belonged to the one true God. They, you know, Jesus comes and, and he tells them, you are, of your, you are slaves, and they're, so we're never slaves to anyone. Meanwhile, Rome is their basically head at the time, their governmental head. And so Herod is in this strange place. These powerful men come, and they tell them that the Jews and unruly people have a king. And these men are there to reverence, to worship this king. And so Herod, what he's, he, he does is he, he says, well, who is this king? And so he gathers all the priests together, all the scribes, the people who would know something about this king, and, they, and he asks them, where will they be born? Where will he be born? And they tell him in Bethlehem. Micah said, he prophesied in Micah 5.2, that the king would be born in Bethlehem. What's interesting about the text is nowhere does Herod, this great jealous king, threaten the Magi. Nowhere. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't tell them, go tell me where he is, bring that news back to me, or else. He kind of tries to use them, manipulate. Okay, 
go there and then tell me. It's almost, I will come worship him too. This is the sense that I get. He's trying to use these men and their greatness to get a, a bead on where this king is, of course, because he wants to kill this child. But he doesn't threaten the Magi at all. This is interesting to me for a man who we know was a jealous ruler, who didn't want anybody vying for his power. He never even threatened these men. So he sends them on their way. Now, this may shed, shed much light on why Herod was so scared, and, and I think it does, and it helps us understand that these were great men. But the question still arises in my mind, how did the wise men know about Jesus? <laughs> I mean, the mysteries are still abounding, aren't they? They follow a, a star, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw not just a star, but his star, when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I said they were astrologers, but there's something very interesting about this star. People say, well, it must have been a particular natural star. And I read so much about ideas and theories, astrologers, mathematicians, what was going on in the night sky that night. And we can get really close to the dates that were at hand. And we know that Halley's Comet was in the 13th year before Christ's birth. And we know that certain uh, things were going on. Um, I can't think of the name. Uh, Johannes Kepler believed that there was a supernova because that wouldn't be explained in the charts. But there's all sorts of theories about what was happening in the night sky at that time. And as I read them all the last few weeks, I determined that none of them knew. <laughs> uh, none of them knew what was going on. Whatever these wise men saw, and one of the reasons why people try so hard to determine what this star was is because these were astrologers. And so the assumption is, well, they're astrologers. They're looking for signs in the stars. And so they see this star, and this is a sign from the astrology that they studied that there was born in somewhere one who is the king of the Jews. And I'm convinced that's not why they came to Jerusalem. I don't think it was because of their astrology. Now, what? then the question is, the reason why is there's nothing that we know a lot more about the stars now than they do, and there doesn't seem to be any natural thing that would happen that would be out of the ordinary in those days. But they saw a star. But what did they call it? They called it his star. It's a very strange thing to name a star as a natural phenomenon occurring, even if they're astrologers, to call it his star. What was this star? We don't know exactly, and it'll appear again. They first see it, and the star was merely rising. We don't know exactly even where it was rising, but they just see it rising. And because of that, they describe it as his star, and they go to Jerusalem. The fact of them going to Jerusalem means they don't know where this child is born, but Jerusalem was the city of David. They would have known that. It was the city where the kings of the Jews resided, and so they go to Jerusalem. And from there, they learn, not from the Jews, but 
by way of the Jews through Herod, they learned where the king would actually be born. And it's there that they set off on their way to Bethlehem. And then the star appears again. Now that's not normal. <laughs> they're, they're seemingly on their way to Bethlehem. And this star doesn't lead them to Bethlehem, by the way. They're already on their way to Bethlehem. The star appears and shows them exactly the place where Jesus is. It says the house he's now in. So he's evidently not in the stable anymore. He's in a house, and the star is now appearing right over this house. Let me say to you, I don't know what this star was. But I think the point of the text is this at this point. These men are being led to Jesus by a light, a star that they're calling a star that the, the scriptures call a star. I think we should call it a star. I don't know if it's a star like we call stars stars, but it is a light. And these men are being led to Jesus by this light. And I think that's what we need to grasp by what we've understood so far. God used this star to lead these men to Jesus. This is because we are being led to Jesus in this text. What is happening in history is for the reader to be following so that we are led to the one that these great men are seeking. You see, the text isn't about the Magi. The text isn't really about Herod. It's not about Mary and Joseph. It's about the one, it's not about the star. It's about the one that all of these things are concerned with. It's about this baby. The great question is why did these Gentile king makers seek Jesus at all? Why did they seek the Messiah? If the star wasn't a natural star, then their astrology wouldn't be the answer they're looking for, that I'm looking for, to answer that question. But also, I think this may be exactly what we see in Matthew's purpose for writing, for recalling this narrative. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 says, Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, commanded the magicians the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the Lord. There's four groups here. Many people believe all these four groups are summarized in verse 48 with the term wise men. That's in the Hebrew, translated from the Hebrew, wise men. All of these groups of people represented some great sort of uh, mystical, supernatural, if you want to call it astrology, astronomy, charters. They were the people that the king sought to interpret dreams, visions. We saw the same thing with Joseph and Pharaoh. And he calls them all together and says, tell me what is going on. And again, they don't know. They don't know. They can't interpret the king's dream. And then Daniel, who is, from, who is a captive from Jerusalem, a child of the Most High God, a covenant member of Israel, taken captive and faithful believer, is called, is summoned, says, God may give you the interpretation of this dream. And he does. 
And he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, which none of these people could do. The magicians, the Chaldeans, none of these sorcerers, none of them could do it. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, the first thing he says is truly to Daniel, your God is the one true God. He's the most high God and he rules in the kingdom of men. And then he does this, and this is so fascinating. He sets up Daniel... In verses 47 and 48, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, listen, and chief prefect over all the wise men. That's an all-encompassing term for all of those four groups. Daniel is now the one who leads them. He's teaching them now. And here's this man, Daniel, who on the face of it seems to be just one of the most remarkable men in scriptures. There's two men in the Old Testament that I think nothing evil is ever said of them. And Joseph is one And Daniel is the other. And Daniel is thrown into prison, we know, because he will not stop worshiping God. And here is he, he, in this place of leadership, leading this class of people. These people that take notes. These people that are interested in things outside of nature and nature itself. And there's something in me that just says, how do these people come? In verse 2, they don't come to make him king, the Magi. They come because one is born king of the Jews. And they come to worship him, the one born king of the Jews. How does that come to pass? It's not, I don't think it's because of the star. The star is not the sufficient answer in my category. The star is leading them in some way that corresponds to something they know about this child. Daniel knew the promises. He knew the promise. He knew that Moses said, one will come after me, a prophet like me, but greater than me, to shepherd my people Israel. Daniel, I believe, may be the means, one faithful man, may be the means whereby we see this, these great men 600 years after Daniel's life has ended following a star, a supernatural sign, I believe, from God that this is where the one who I promise would be born and is, has been born and you may go worship him there. Now, I don't know how all of that transpired, But that is how I see this text unfolding with the information we have. One thing I believe that we ought to know when we come to this is that God's word is faithful. You see, in the middle of this text, a prophecy is described from Micah 5.2. 700 years before Jesus is born, Herod goes, where is the Messiah to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. Micah prophesied in Bethlehem of Judea. And sure enough, that's where these wise men go. That's where they find Jesus. That's remarkable. 
God fulfills his word. Second, we need to see in this to show that Christ's appearance was for the salvation, not just of the Jews. Over and over again, we are hearing in the Christmas narratives that Jesus came born king of the Jews. And here we, we have this picture, and the early church was very quick to recognize this. We have this picture of three Gentile magis, at least. I said three, and yeah. We don't know how many there were, but we have these magis. They're Gentiles, and they're led by a light to one born king of the Jews. And what do they do when they get there? I find it amazing. They rejoiced. <laughs> and they proskuneo, they got on their knees and worshipped this child. That term proskuneo, uh, it, it means worshipped. It's what Satan said to Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. And Jesus says, you will worship only the Lord thy God. Him you shall serve. That's the same word. When people come try to worship Peter in Acts, Peter tells them, get up. This same word. Get up. I'm a man. <laughs> and Matthew says, these great men bow down and worship this baby. <laughs> and it's fitting and I think Matthew wants us to come right there and say, this is a great child. This is the Lord. And the Gentiles have found him. This is incredible. This is in incredible for us. Simeon, a faithful man of Israel, says in Luke 2, 29 through 32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Isaiah 50, verse 10 said, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That is the story of how the Gentiles became part of the covenant people of God. God led us to himself by his son. The fact that we don't know what this light is, I think, sheds a lot of light on what's going on here. I think this light is God leading the Gentiles, symbolic of God leading the Gentiles to his son. It is God who does it. It's God who has done it. We have been included who were once aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, separated from the people of God. We have been brought in together to commune with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Daniel and Joseph, Simeon. And this is a great picture of our salvation. Third and finally, this text is to show the immeasurable greatness of Jesus. This may be the most surprising aspect of the scene, but the worshiping of the child 
is the point of this text. It's the great direction this text leads to. It's everything that is going on. This child is to be worshipped. This person is to be praised. He is to be glorified. They open their treasures. It seems like this is something they have to do. They just have to show that he is great. They have to magnify the child. They offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's very interesting because these gifts correspond very clearly in the tradition, in the symbolic traditions of the day as gold because he was a king. Gold was synonymous with royalty. The greater your the hold of gold as a king, the greater you were a king. And they give him gold. Frankincense was often and most often used in deity for, for offering up gifts to deity. The finest and perhaps costliest of oils, according to early church tradition, was used for worshiping deity. Perhaps mysteriously myrrh was given to him, which was often symbolic of burials because it was used to embalm the dead. These gifts are remarkable because it does describe who we have here. We have a picture, one of hope, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentile because of Christ's appearing. And we see here that these gifts, in a sense, recognize who he was, the King of Kings, truly God and truly man, one who came to die for men, to save men, to save mankind. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So just as his star led these magi to himself, his star, may every light remind us of the source of all light. The light of this world is Jesus. And because of that light, because of Jesus, may we have a very Merry Christmas. We come not celebrating a feast of Epiphany. We're not going to have another holiday on January 6th. I am so grateful we get to partake in this supper, though, together. Jesus came to die. He came Lord. He humbled himself and became man like us to save us. And the means of him saving us is by the death on the cross. Jesus never taught us to observe Christmas. I think it's great that we can do it. It's one of those freedoms that I think we should take and we should relish in it. We should do it joyfully and merrily and abundantly as we, are, we have opportunity. But how much more so should we come to this table with joy? Jesus accomplished what he came to do. Everything we've looked at in the Epiphany sermons, if you remember them, I'm not going to go through them all, was accomplished not just by Jesus being born, not by him living a life, of sinless perfection 
It was accomplished in his death. It was accomplished in his resurrection. His appearing encompassing, encompasses all of his coming into the world. His whole life. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. But he tells us, this do in remembrance of me. So as we come to the table of the Lord, we come remembering that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we may be children, sons of God. So come to the table this morning. Feast on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And be merry, because in him our sins are washed away.